Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I am good today. During this last kind of 14, 15 weeks of lockdown, I... Is that how long it's been? Is that actually how yeah. long it's been? For me, anyway. I don't know if it is for everyone else, but I started very early, remember. Oh, um, that has gone quick. There has been this kind of thing on my mind the kind of entire time and it's evolved as the lockdowns progressed. But I feel like this kind of urgent necessity for understanding. And mm-hmm. through lockdown, I think I've become a better listener. And partly through doing the podcast with you and talking to people all over the world in this new way. But this idea as well of kind of understanding and then also listening to others about, you know, their experiences and their experience of just, you know, even walking down the street and living in the world. I'm kind of learning more and more every day about different people's experiences and then with the black lives matter you know global movement that has kind of expanded and really yeah, taken hold in an amazing yeah. way i feel like there's a kind of extra level of understanding now and also kind of feeling like as an individual we have power you know with our voices okay we might not be mps ourselves but we all can come together in solidarity and try and fight for what is right in the world and Maybe you can engender political or social change, just, you know, you and your community and, you know, through education. So it's quite heavy topics, but at the same time, we are human. And I think it's good also to have kind of a lighter touch and maybe humour. And I felt like today's artist who we're going to be speaking to for talk art is is so genius because yes. I've always loved the way that she can use like satire and wit and humor mm-hmm. and also a kind of playful energy in the work, a kind of theatricality um, to her, her, her sculptures and, and artwork that can actually help you to access very deep and very meaningful um, issues around kind of yep. culture and cultural history. And, oh, and, and I also think this artist would see her work in parallel with her political activism each of them has the same weight within this artist's practice. Yeah. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Lou Himid. Hello, hello, hello. How are you today, Lubaina? I'm kind of, um, well, it, amazingly, I'm up in Preston, as you know, in the north of England, and it's mm-hmm. unbelievably hot up here. Mm. It's, it's really magnificently, beautifully warm, but... That's very. It's quite unusual. <laughs> do you do you get out and about when like on days like this, or are you 
are you someone that's really locked into your studio? Well, it's a strange thing. My, my studio's in my house. I have a house that overlooks a park, an enormous park with a river running through it. Um, and so on a day like this, usually I would be in my studio just with the windows open and looking out onto people walking by and trees, and the river beyond. Um, mm -hmm. But today I felt a bit like Monet. And so I took the painting outside, what I'm doing, mm -hmm. and painted a little bit for a few hours in, in my garden at the back. Oh, nice. Well, I don't Is that called usually plein that. air? Yes, good. Was you drawing what you were do. seeing? No, not okay. at all. No, I was colouring in really. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds nice. That's that so sounds nice. nice. Well, we want to start off by saying you're wonderful. We love you on Talk Art. We've been wanting to talk to you for a long, long time. So this is a really exciting chat for us to be having with you. And you are uh, an MBE, uh, oh, which I, I love. At, and a C, MBE oh, and in 2010 a CBE, yeah. and a CBE in 2018 for <laughs> services to the arts and then a Turner Prize winner in 2017. So you've got a lot of letters after your yeah. name. <laughs> Lots of medals. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you, do you have these medals up and what does it feel like to have so many letters after your name? <laughs> it's very funny. It's funny. It just feels quite peculiar. I rather like the medals though. I Sometimes when I'm a bit drunk, I get them out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Are they, do you look like a mayor, like the Lord Mayor, when they go no, out with I all that? No, I don't them? wear them. I just say oh. my friends will testify that if I have had a few drinks and there's a lot of people around or something and somebody doesn't, hasn't ever seen my medals, I say, oh, oh, just a minute, I'll go and show them to you and I get them out. It's really <laughs> terrible. <laughs> you were given the MBE for services to black women's art and then you were given the CBE for services to art. Yeah. Um, so when you got the MBE, first of all, that must have been a very, it must have, what, what did it actually feel like to, to, you know, to have it for that, for that reason? Because it's a very important, um, you know, I'd never seen yeah. a title like that before, actually. No, and it, for me, it was, I mean, it was actually incredibly important, you know, sort of astonishing in a way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know, I was, mm, I don't know, I, very emotional, really, about it. I, I wasn't sort of. Um, I have to admit, I wasn't thinking about not accepting it. Um, and I took my mum and my auntie, who were very mm. elderly even then, and I just thought, oh, this is. I don't know. I mean, I suppose the the really achieving thing is when you see those sorts of exhibitions work and you see the careers of those artists you've been working with grow and grow. But that was, that sort of MBE thing was something else. It meant that, you know, somebody was acknowledging that those kinds of things mattered, that you yes. could, that you could do something with an art show and it meant something, you yes. know? Um, so it was, you know, it was kind of mixed, but I, I can't say that I was one of those very, uh, strict people that thought, no, I'm not accepting it, you know, which um, some people have taken me to task for, but it doesn't matter. Have they? Right. Yeah, because I think some people think that it's just too connected to empire and to yeah, yeah. Uh, the royal family and all those things. And um, whereas actually, I think it's sort of probably more political than, than that. But 
yeah, so some people yeah. wouldn't accept them. Right. Well, we said in your intro that your work goes hand in hand, your your uh, practice, your artistic practice, but also your political activism. You, you, I've seen a lot of interviews now I've been watching and you, you put that at the forefront of your practice as well. That for you is fundamental to your, um, your work, right? Yeah, it's all about, I mean, it's all about um, trying to understand what it is to belong, trying to... Uh, make visible contribution that uh, black people have made, you know, to, to well, cultural, the cultural landscape. Mm. Um, so it's making those, those things visible is really the, at the forefront of what I do. Um, yeah, uh, it's incredibly important to me that um, the that we're allowed to express, if we want to, that sense of belonging uh, that I think a lot of us feel. Um, and somehow that still needs fighting for. Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, right now, hashtag yeah. Black Lives Matters, the movement. Yeah. How, how, how are you feeling about where the world is at now, currently, with, with this massive movement that's gaining momentum, like, globally? Well, it is quite extraordinary because it's exhausting, actually. Strangely, it's absolutely knackering. And every, pretty much every uh, one of the people that I know, you know, are the artists, are the black artists, um, writers, musicians, or whatever, are kind of pretty exhausted with it. Um, it's a strange feeling, actually, you know, because in some ways, many of us have been fighting this fight for many, many decades. And to see it, actually shifting. I mean, I, I would say I saw a lot of things shift in the 1980s. And then, of course, they seem not to shift. There was this terrifying decade or more where every gain that we seem to have made then just froze. And it was scary. I, I call it the wilderness years, you know, when I'm feeling particularly, um, you know, articulate. And I think that that, that makes me fearful, um, but I think it's one of those uh, one of those incredible moments that is a culmination of thousands of other moments that we've had, but that not everybody simultaneously understood in the way that everyone can understand it now because of how we communicate. Mm. Um, you know, there, lots of us know about sort of. Uh, very important political moments when things changed, when you could suddenly see black people on the television where yep. before you couldn't, where there were black people on the fronts of magazines or in newspapers where in our childhoods, in our childhood, they weren't. So, but not everybody was noticing that. Um, and so I think what's special or what's particularly striking about now is that there's a beginning to be an understanding by everybody of some of the histories, why we are where we are, how we all got to where we are, mm -hmm. and an understanding that the important thing is that it, there needs to be more than words. There needs to be action, 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 action. And it just needs to, to keep going, you know? And I think what makes me nervous, but well, that's because, you know, I've watched this for a very long time, are, are just the words. 
And I think, well, you yeah. know, you need to, even if you're just doing a small thing, whether it's us as people of the black diaspora, us as Africans, whatever, even if it's just a small thing, do a small thing, or whether it's other people who are learning about this stuff for the first time. Yeah. Don't try and do a big thing. Don't overpromise. And that's what I mean by politicians, yeah. uh, institutions. Don't overpromise. Just do what you can do and keep doing it. And we may just keep this thing going. Keeping the energy going. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, and the talk. So you're, so you're saying you fear slightly that because you've experienced change in the 80s and then you, you said the wilderness years, you, your fear now is that there's this rapid momentum and it feels like change is going to happen and something might shift, but then it might end up just going into this a wilderness again. Is that what you're yes, exhausted fear, at yes. the thought of that? Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was talking to um, the board at Open School East the other day and we were chatting That's about in Margate, this. isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's a free yeah. art school. And um, we were discussing, I'm, I'm a board member now, and we were discussing how I think what we all have to do actually is commit to it for the rest of our lives. And like you say, everybody has to take a responsibility for you know coming together and trying to bring about change within organizations and whether that does mean just like the small organization that you're part of I, I really believe in that idea of like you know influencing your local community your street yeah. you know your neighbors your family your parents mm. your, your yeah. brothers and sisters friends that's because like that that's how you change the world and yes that's and, all you can do you know we're yeah. we're not yeah, we're not big, powerful people. We're just ourselves, and we can only do what we can do. And that's yeah. that's good. That's good enough. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So l looking back to like 40 years ago, 37 years ago, when you first um, were curating as well and making art, and you were part of the UK black art movement of the 80s, um, can you remember like what 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 was your thinking behind exhibitions like Black Women Time Now that you did in Battersea in eighty three? Um, can well, you speak a bit about uh, that time? Yeah, when the thing is, I went to art school um, to study theatre design, yeah. and um, when I when I left, I did lots of very very small fringe theatre things with various tiny tiny companies, and I, and it. it I wasn't particularly. I wasn't particularly successful at it, and I. So but a lot of but you did the sets. You did the sets for these. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Because that's because that's my in with your work as well, Abena. Is that I? Because as an actor and doing theatre, is that it feels so immersive and so theatrical your work as well. And and we we get onto that. Sorry for interrupting, but I just yeah, yeah. that's what yeah. that's what is exciting for me about your work is it has this, um, yeah, this this such this theatrical essence to it as well. Well, I suppose I'm just really convinced by that relationship between performance and audience. You know, that yeah. kind of two-way thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, multiple, more than two-way, but, you know, this give and take, this brokering conversation that goes on. Yeah, yeah and, and how much energy audience is going to give give back. So mm -hmm. so I, I became um, uh, involved in um, making... Um, the designs for Tuttons, which was a big um, brasserie sort of place uh, in the middle of the 70s, where I designed everything for it, you know, the tables, the decor, the menus and all this stuff. And But the guy running it, Tutton, didn't have much extra money, you know what I mean? So I said, okay, I'll run some 
uh, I, I knew lots of artists because I'd been to art school. I said, I'll run some uh, sort of temporary pop-up type exhibitions on the walls of this place. But that seems kind of normal now, but somehow then it was not normal in the middle of the 70s. Um, and, uh, and, and so curating shows, which I never called it because it wasn't curating, it was selecting work by people that I knew, was something that I, I just did, really. I thought these walls need covering, these people need to show the stuff they're making, people coming to eat food might be interested in buying the stuff and talking about it while they're eating, because a lot of people, when they come and eat, don't talk to each other. They run out <laughs> of things to say. So I thought we'd give them something to kind of talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you know, and all that. And then that kind of developed then, because it was in Covent Garden. I was then talking to people at the um, Africa, uh, Africa Center. And, um, and I was writing a thesis at the Royal College of Art uh, called Young Black Artists in Britain Today. And I began to know more and more artists up and down the country, and I thought, well, what artists want is to show their work. So I sort of sent out these uh, typewritten notes in, in or notices, sort of thing, in envelopes to art centres and art schools and community centres all up and down the country, and said, you know, if, if you're an artist and a black artist and that's how you identify and you want to show your work, send me some slides, you know, which were little uh, square transparencies that mm. didn't have computers or any of that stuff. JPEGs, PDFs. None, yeah, none mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then I gathered lots of people's work, and um, you know, Sonia Boyce, and Veronica Ryan, Claudette Denzel Johnson. Forrester. All these people sent, yep. yeah, fantastic. Well, actually, he, he went to art school with me, but I didn't really know oh, him yeah. there because he was in the painting department at Wimbledon Art School, and I was in the theatre department, and of course, never the twain shall meet. But, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's, he's yeah, yeah. He is yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, and yeah, so I had a lot of uh, this work, and and so I decided that I would try to show it. But I, so I gradually made these exhibitions. The first ones at Africa Centre, then Battersea Arts Centre, mm -hmm. and then the ICA um, on the Mall. And on and off, I've been doing that. Um, on and off ever since, but 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 not to such a sort of concentrated, not in such a concentrated way um, as I did it then. But I just met a lot of people through that, you know, by either meeting them for the first time and going to the black art conferences that the, the black art group put on in Wolverhampton, um, and all sorts of conversations and smaller groups kind of mm -hmm. built from there, really. Right. And you, you said you put out the, the feelers for people saying if they identified as black artists. Did you ever like, come across any artists that didn't want to identify as black artists? They wanted to make work and not have that as, as something that they identified with? Absolutely. But then they didn't contact me because I was very clear about what I was trying to do. At that right. time, see, I was absolutely convinced that that's what we had to do in order mm -hmm. to... Make change. In, yeah. And, and yeah. Representation. And, and I, yeah. Yeah, and I was pretty convinced that because all these artists made work in completely different ways from each other, that that it would allow a freedom to carry on making work in completely different ways from each other. You know, Veronica Ryan's work is not anything like Sonia Boyce's work. So I knew that if I was showing 
these two together, along with Claudette Johnson or Shitapa Biswas or Shaila Berman or Maud Salter, that this work was so different from each other that it would be obvious, especially to art people, that <laughs> there was more to it than they could see. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it kind of worked and it kind of didn't. You know, and I think I think it's definitely those exhibitions spoke to black audiences um, and made a difference, it made a huge difference, I think, you know, connecting to, say, the work of Claudette Johnson. And it's phenomenal. Figurative. You know, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, really wonderful, wonderful work. And I think audiences really connected to that. Yes. But it took the art world, well, you know, many years to really understand what it was we were doing. Yeah, it's so true. And actually, Cla- Claudette Johnson's show in Oxford, at Modern Art Oxford, yeah. was yes. such an incredible moment. Absolutely. And and I think that was one of those times when, you know, curators and the kind of the system of the art world get it right, because it was just such an amazing show. I mean, yeah. you know, I think it's changed so much. You know, j- just like your kind of, you know, show at Spike Island and then the Turner Prize show yourself and now Sonia um, Boyce, you know, going to be representing Great Britain. The, the first Finale black woman to year. represent Britain, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but like I do feel like these these are monumental, important moments and by yeah. great artists, you know, and it, we're so lucky that, you know, that we, we have that in, in the UK. Yeah, I think, I think the lucky thing is that we kept going Yes, <laughs> to me. Persistence, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't really know. I don't really know how we kept going. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think for me, a lot of people helped me along the way. You know, um, uh, a lot of people Inst- who were... Institutions friends, or... or f- you know, of friends and, um, and, yeah, some institutions, some curators within institutions believed in it kept showing it, you know, but didn't really have the power to make it more public. You know, it wasn't really in a, until those three galleries, um, you know, with, 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 of course, the, you know, the real belief of Hollybush Gardens Gallery, who I was showing, started showing with in 2013. It wasn't really till they began to convince people that, you know, that this stuff was interesting that those galleries and museums had the courage, I think, to go with it. So, you know, I was showing work, you know, it's by Island that, that I'd shown a decade before, but mm-hmm. no one was that interested then, but it was the same stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, Hollywood Gardens really made the difference, you know, mm-hmm. in that they, I, I mean, they're a great gallery, but, but you know, yeah. They're culturally, they're institutionally aware. They're like, they have a conversation with the institutions. They have like a, a dialogue. Yeah, I think so. I think they they dared to show my work when no one else in London was showing it, and um, in 2013, and they kept going with it. You know, presumably they just kept talking about it. How, how do you feel about the, um, the, the the diaspora in in the art scene now, like the representation that's out there? Because it feels there's a huge movement now. There's so many uh, artists of colour that are having incredible successes and yeah. and representation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, suddenly everyone realised that that this work was incredibly powerful. 
And it's not that it's more powerful than the work made by, you know, white French artists or Americans or whatever. It's just a, that it is as powerful. You know, it's, it's, it's talking about real life and real dreams, you know, and real conviction. And, you know, uh, yeah, I think, um, but, but, you know, you know, the thing about art, if you show it in very beautiful spaces made for showing art, give it space, give it light, give it audience to give it energy back, then that kind of, there's nothing quite like that. And as, I think as soon as everyone began to realize that in these institutions, you know, you put on work in, in very wonderful spaces it it animates and and energizes those spaces as well, you know, yeah, and, and brings complicated com- conversations. You know. Yeah, a great example of that in your work was naming the money from two thousand and four, um, the installation of you know many kind of cut out figures. Um, it's very theatrical that that, yeah. piece, but that was a, a work that really you know blew me away actually. I, I think and, yeah, j- and just the the stories behind it. Can you speak a bit about that work? And is is that a work that kind of you made in two thousand and four, but got better known later? So I feel like I yeah, I think Absolutely, I found it yeah. in two thousand and fourteen or something, or much later. Yeah, yeah, I made it in two thousand and four, two thousand five, whatever it was, and I showed it a fantastic curator. Um, who was working at the time uh, uh, called, um, she changed her name now, but Lucy uh, Wexton, Lucy Wexton, um, uh, was working at the time at the Hatton Gallery, which is part of Newcastle University. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked with her at Bolton Art Gallery, where she put on a show of my work. And uh, then she moved from Bolton. She, she negotiated with me at Bolton and then she moved and, and I made the show for somebody else. But when she moved to Manhattan, she said, you know, I, I really would like to work with you making something. And I said, OK, yeah, I'd really like to do that. And I had this crazy idea to, um, I'd seen some beautiful paintings in um, La Rochelle um, of uh, people uh, who had been given from given by the King of Spain to the King of France as presents? They were black people. They were slaves, but they were they were beautifully dressed in these fantastic outfits, and they had a kind of text across their sort of a sash across each of their uh, costumes that said their name and and how good they were at playing the lute or whatever. And I thought to myself, actually, I want to recreate these ten paintings. So I was just going to make ten. Uh, very large paintings, sort of uh, re remaking this work that I'd seen, and I thought uh, so I was going to do, and then I w- went to a show in um, White Cube, and I was a bit annoyed. I was annoyed by the people that I met. She said, "Oh, we must do lunch," and blah blah blah. And I, I was kind of cranky, you know. I could even, you know, almost name the spot at. Old Street Station, where I said to my friend who I was with at the time, an artist called Susan Walsh, I said, you know something, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to make 10 paintings. I'm going to make 100 paintings, Mm. 100 cutouts on cardboard of 100 of these black slave servants. And she said, oh, don't make them on cardboard. She said, they'll just, you know, they'll just rot away. You mustn't do that because it'll look as if you didn't care. 
and she said, and I know, do you do care? Make them on wood. And we lived in, in the house that I'm living in now. And so I made these hundred cutouts and they just were all over this house. Um, and some of them, you know, I'd, I'd paint some, I'd be making the text writing the text that go on would the you, back. Would they creep you? Would you like jump sometimes thinking there's someone behind you? If these well, there were so many. <laughs> there were so many that you 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 jump if there wasn't one. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> right. <laughs> the wow. only place you... they weren't was in the bedroom. That was the only place they weren't allowed. That was a sacred place everywhere. they couldn't be there. Yeah. Right. No. But would you cut them all out yourself? Would you paint them no. first, then cut them? I used to. I used to, um, to do that. Uh but I got someone else to cut them out. Right, right, right. But you would paint yeah. them first on like a sheet. Well, there's a hundred big sheet of wood. Yeah. No, I got the. I did. I made paper, paper drawings, paper paintings. Then I oh. got somebody to make uh, templates of each of them. So there were ten, mm. draw ten watercolors, and then from each of these uh, people, they then made ten cutouts. So then uh, there were a hundred altogether. And so there are 10 drummers, 10 uh, herbalists, ceramicists, dog trainers, and all of them are different, even though everyone is the same shape. And then, and then I, other people made the stands for me. And, and you, you, you know, you, and you were always, it was always an installation and you walked in and out and mm. um, around these things, look, looking at the names on the back, looking at their stories, um, all of which I, I made up, um, but I suppose right, so you, the, you created their original name. You you made up their original name and what their occupation was before they were enslaved. Well, their original name are names are Af- all of them African names. So uh-huh. I would be reading um, folk stories, um, African folk stories. I'd look at wow. websites with African baby names. I would think of all the people I was related to and all the people they're related to, and came up with a hundred names. Um, but I made up their occupations, yeah, and their dreams, really. It's about, it's about being taken away from where you belong, but being placed in somewhere else, getting your name taken away from you, but you are still that person, and how to kind of resolve that and keep going. You know, um, you know it happens to everybody. You know, it happens to young mothers in the suburbs. You know, they, they want to be ballerinas or whatever and they they get married they they have children they take their kids to ballet classes but you know so they never are those things they they're not the original person they were but but they still can dream they can still listen to beautiful music you know so it was it's a hopeful work though that the the piece is you what what, what you hope the audience was was feeling going into that room well, I suppose it's it's what I always hope audiences are feeling is that they can that there is hope that that we've survived that we've come out of these disastrous, mm. chaotic, horrible situations. You know, even the you know the Holocaust. People came out the other end of that, and you know. Uh, you have to have hope. You have to have belief that you can change things. And I think I, I always want people to come out of my shows thinking there is some small thing they can do. Even if it's they come out and they think, do you know something? I could write a postcard to my auntie. That might make a yeah. difference. You know, it's, yeah. it's really, I'm really into this kind of, and it's a bit of a cliche, but everybody making a very, very small 
change. Yeah, and it forward. Yeah, and then it kind of yeah. builds and builds. But yeah, the shows are about about that really you know the the naming the money piece like i i i find such a kind of joy and um sort of a a kind of celebration of the human spirit as well and also the 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 costumes and the clothes they're wearing i call them costumes because they become Mm. almost like these players don't they somehow and you can't quite define what time they're from actors isn't it yeah yeah. and they could almost be from the future or they could be from you know hundreds of years ago there's a kind of but what i love about them is the 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 kind of urgency of communication as well you feel like they're just you know dying to talk to you as well there's a a real open communication yeah, it's all about that. It's all about the conversation. And I, I, I made a soundtrack which, as well, which I, um, where I spoke every one of those texts. Yeah. And then um, it's been remixed now by um, an artist that I work with quite a lot called um, Magda Stavarska-Bevan. But um, so she remixed it for Spike Island. But so there are these... Um, uh, pieces of music, whether it's John Coltrane or whether it's Baroque French music, all this is playing. Where I where I think that we as uh, as Black people have kind of been in all these places. We we we've been in southern France. We've been in um, you know North America. We've been we are everywhere influencing the culture. And mm. so the music is kind of suggesting that. So you might see the show and only hear John Coltrane because you left before right. Miriam McCabe was singing. Um, but all the time I'm speaking the texts. So if you're not a person who wants to read when you're in an art gallery, you can just wander and look and listen instead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that kind of joyful, hopeful thing. Yeah, because that's, you know, if one is confronted by a trauma, you're simply going to be traumatized and leave either feeling guilty or unable to act. And that's no use to me. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. joy is kind of a mechanism for uh, making a change, I guess. Yeah, that's ways. why that's those colors are. Yeah, that's why the colors are so, in lots of the work I make, that's why the colors are so vibrant. I need something to draw everybody in. You know, if you if you see something that's brightly coloured, you know, you go buy buying clothes or buying carpets or buying curtains or, or those sorts of things. You you you're drawn to pattern and colour, and then you decide whether you want to buy it or. Or if you're going to a museum, an object museum, you know, you're drawn towards glittering things or yeah. or beautiful things, and you go towards them, and then you have a kind of intimate conversation with those things. But your conversation, you know. And your discovery of colour came from your mother because she was a textile designer, right? So your ability to create these colours was from childhood. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she I've said it often, but every other weekend we'd go to big department stores, which, you know, are more, more sort of prevalent, I suppose, than, than maybe they are now. And we'd just look at stuff. You know, we would just look at beautiful dresses and fabrics and we wouldn't necessarily buy anything but it was all about you know her looking at what was very current and um getting me to understand the feel of different fabrics and we should just be because she'd say feel this dress you know how lovely it is and it would be a beautiful you know silk or whatever but we didn't because you're in a shop you can touch anything you like which of course was the opposite to another weekend where we'd go to an art gallery where you could look, but you couldn't touch. 
but also what I try to say often to people now is, of course, everything in the museum belongs to us. You know, and you can go around the V&A and you can think, oh, that's a lovely piece of jewellery, that belongs to me, that piece of furniture, that belongs to me, that tapestry, <laughs> that belongs to me, because we own those collections. So there's a two things, you know, where there's a glorious feeling of, especially in Britain, because most of galleries and collections are free. So you can really feel, you can go and see fabulous stuff and you own it. And you can go to these department stores, you can touch it, and you, you, maybe you don't need to own it. You know, how many beautiful dresses does a woman need? <laughs> yeah. It's so true, though, isn't it? And I, I heard you describe um, kind of clothing design. It can almost be like a secret, but a kind of visible language between women in particular. Can you talk a bit about that idea, the kind of communication through clothes? And... Yeah, well, uh, it, it sort of comes from that. I mean, I think, I, I think that's absolutely the case. Any woman knows what another woman is thinking and feeling by noticing what she's decided to put on. Really? I, I would say that. I know that. Yeah, I would it's say that. Hidden, I know that. in conversation, yeah. I know that about all the women I know. I know how they're feeling by what they decided to put on today. I think, oh, yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, it's I think like I know a... that. Yeah. Um, but also, it comes from, um, and I come from uh, Zanzibar and um, the, uh, a lot of the women there, certainly when I was born, were wearing, um, in the 50s, were wearing kangas, which are uh, cloths, uh, made, you know, just two pieces of cloth uh, that have um, a border and then a central motif and a text. And, and when you went to the shop, you bought uh, a kanga, which is like this thing that I've just described, but twice. So you cut it down the middle, and so you wear the uh, bottom half, you know, one half around the bottom of you as a skirt, and the other around the top of you. Um, but what women do, of course, is that they might wear the bottom half, might say, um, uh, I don't know, never marry a bald barber or whatever, and the top half might say... Um, um, this could be my sweetest day. So you, like we do, we mix and match what we're wearing. But those are actually talking clothes in that the patterns have significance and the texts, of course, have significance. They're often witty. Um, and, and if a group of women were going to a wedding or something, they would all wear the same kanga. So that would be saying, we all came together. We are this uh, group of the brides. Uh, friends, as opposed to that group of the bridesmaids, you know. So I kind of brought up with the kind of idea of wearing clothes was meaningful rather than casual. Yeah. Again. I want to see these. They sound amazing. I, I want to dress that says "Never marry a bald barber." I think I'd look, <laughs> I think I'd look great in that. You so, would. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did do an exhibition though at the Baltic. Um, that, yeah. that kind of referenced all of this directly, didn't you? With with yes. texts actually in the hanging cloths and stuff. So that was a really powerful installation itself and very different, actually, to the other one we mentioned. Yes, um, I was trying in, in that show um, to make work that audience could actually really touch and 
move, which of course yeah. would be very difficult now. They, um, I made these uh, tangos on, on paper and then they were printed on huge um, cloth. Um, and my assistants, uh, Matt and Teo, rigged up um, pulleys and ropes and so audience members could pull on the ropes and these kangas would go from side to side of the gallery. So you could make different kind of texts um, come together, if you like. So the text yeah, from uh, one with a text from another. And kids love it. Like an exquisite corpse in. type thing, like when you place... Yes. yes. But with, with the clothing, right. And, and so you were kind of inside the kangas in a way you could wrap yourself in a bit like uh, you know athletes do when they're wrapping themselves in the um in the union jack so you could kind of feel you belonged i was trying to think about regimental colors all that kind of thing for for people who don't usually get to wrap themselves in a flag could kind of wrap themselves in these move them about like being on a boat or um wow. and yeah so it was it was kind of all about that um, again a kind of Theatrical conceit, I guess. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Definitely, totally. yeah. And incredibly in- interactive. And I, I, I really loved the colour of the rope as well, because it was this bright kind of red. Yeah. Um, and there's that kind of red thread. You know, it's another kind of connecting line in a way, you know, that we're all connected somehow. Like, I, 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 I really found that quite touching, actually. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you like, do you like your um, audience to interact with the work you were saying about how as a kid you were like you can't go to the museum and touch do you do you like the idea of that interaction and that that touching um essence to things yeah i do really you know um which is of course is a pity now because people that's the last thing people are allowed to do um Mm. so it's kind of a bit of a shame but yes i do um i made uh, a, a show once uh, with um, farm carts, so these uh, old farm carts that you can get in Eastern Europe. Um, yeah, like little wooden carts, yeah. Yes, and some of them are big uh, hay carts and dung carts and dog carts, you know. And uh, I made them for, for a show at the Tetley, um, and people could move the carts around. And some people put their kids in them and wheeled them about. Oh, yeah. And you painted so, in them? As well, yes. Right? You paint- yes, I painted um, spiders and scorpions, all, all sorts of kind of dangerous, in inverted commas, kind of nasty creatures that people usually don't like. That's snakes but and I stuff, was, right, right. Yes, I was trying to sort of say, well, you know, snakes are not frightening to other snakes, and uh, spiders are really very keen on other spiders, you know. <laughs> it was about othering, it was about the other is not necessarily um, nasty and dangerous, you know. <laughs> and you didn't feel any of sort of precious protection of the art you'd made? You was quite happy for it to get scuffed or played in? It's extraordinary. No, I wasn't afraid of it at all. I don't know about what Holly Bush Gardens thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't bother asking. Try to place it afterwards. They're like, this was a painting of a spider, but uh, for, toddlers have been all over it, but yeah. But actually, people are incredibly careful, you know? Yeah, so they would put their children in them, but they, would, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't try to wreck it, you know? And they wouldn't, yeah, people were incredibly careful. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com But also, you you had a rocking horse, didn't you? And I, I imagine like these carts and rocking horses are actually very strong, um, you know, yeah. designs and strong objects because they're designed to you know carry things yeah. across a farm. Be used, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Day. To yeah. be used, yeah. So it's all yeah. part of the the work. And yeah. yeah, I'm really interested in that everyday objects thing. You know, I've painted on um, um, tureens and jugs and plates. Yes. You know, um, bits of old piano. You know, Inside I, I drawers, of, you pulled out yeah. drawers and you've then put that onto the, the wall and you can... Yeah. What, what is it about the found object? Is it about the energy that that harnesses of the everyday or...? Uh, yeah, I think there's that, but there's also... It's not, it's, not a, it's not an object that you're afraid of. You're not looking at it thinking, oh, um, this is kind of special. You're thinking, oh, it's a drawer. I know what a drawer is. I know what a, pay, well, what a plate is. I know what a jug is. It's like, yeah, yeah this, is, this is about us and about... You know, yes, it's about us. It's just ordinary, I guess. But there's so much special sort of memory or special kind of emotions tied up in everyday objects. You know, you know, you go to the cupboard to get a cup for your coffee and you choose this one rather than that one. And yes. some get left in the cupboard, you know. They have you know, personalities, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Alan Bennett talks about that. Alan Bennett says that okay. you pull a fork out and you're like, that's the good fork, that's the nasty fork. And if you end up with the nasty fork, you need to do the more washing up. But it's like you give these objects that are inanimate personalities where you're like, I'm not going to have that. That's my favourite cup. That isn't mm. my best cup. It's yeah. so strange. You're right. You project yeah. onto them an energy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I know yeah. that people do that every day because if yeah. I do it, then everybody does it. So mm. I'm I'm kind of banking on, I suppose, people doing that when they're in the art gallery. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I also think that as a kind of um, you know a method of making work is really clever because it means that you're kind of opening up. Um, there's a kind of openness to it, which is gonna yeah. which is gonna encourage the viewer's curiosity, which then it sets when them they at ease. Discover, puts them at ease. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. But then when they, you, that's a draw. Yeah, yeah. But when they then discover like the kind of thinking behind the work, and like they start to explore, you know, the the topics that you're discussing, whether it be mm. you know slave trade or like you know mm. um, you know making sure that we're kind of not forgetting, you know, the importance of. Um, black people history. across the world yeah. and and the impact they've actually had on all of our cultural history and the richness mm -hmm. of that history so i think it's such a clever you know way of making work because it makes it so accessible to to, to actually deal and think about very important you know hard-hitting issues so 
I think it comes from that theatre um, background, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I, mean, I didn't much like my um, art school education doing theatre design. I wasn't very happy, but I learned a hell of a lot about almost everything, really. I mean, I suppose if you're 18, you do learn a lot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I just discovered so much by doing that course. You know, and it didn't matter that I never really was a theatre designer. You know, you've used it all of your yeah, career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You channeled it into your art. And can we talk about your actual art, your actual skill, the way you paint? Because I, 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 I think your painting skill is phenomenal, and it doesn't. It feels like the the subject of the works become more than actually when you get up close to the paintings and you see the skill that you have. What, what, where do you get your uh, taste of art, like uh, your your way of expressing yourself? Where do you think that has come from uh, to inspire you to make the the way that you um, make work? Well, I guess it's changed a lot over the years. The way I paint has changed a lot as I've mm-hmm. kind of shifted and changed as a person. But I mean, I've been looking at art all my life and I teach, I've been teaching art for 30 years so I've been talking to artists every single day mm-hmm. you know the ones the ones that I was teaching I mean for the truth be known they were teaching me stuff more than I was teaching them stuff but you know we try not to <laughs> go there um, mm-hmm. but I think <laughs> um, you know so there's sometimes early on I suppose I was painting cutouts and I was using, um, I mean, those early cutouts, those cutout men with the four-foot penises. I was drawing uh, on the wood and I was using house paint. I wasn't really, it wasn't so much a kind of uh, thinking about the paint at all, as I was thinking about the idea. And then when I started to paint on canvas, I wanted to do a lot of work where I was mixing the color on the canvas so that the, I was using acrylics and painting with big, wet, bright colours, and then painting with other wet, bright colours into those wet colours on the canvas. So there's yeah. early sort of works like from, um, I don't know, paintings like from the uh, Plan B work that I did for Tates and Thives, or um, other uh, Venice Studio and other... Uh, set of work. No, do I mean that? No, Venetian maps. Um, another right, set of right. work. I was kind of painting these big, bright, um, really energetic things. And a lot of the time, that was because I didn't have all that much time to paint. I paint very early in the morning. I go to uh, work and teach uh, in the morning. And I live very, very near where the old art school that I taught at used to be. So maybe about. 500 meters from my front door to the front door of the art school. So I would be painting really early in the morning. I'd go to work. I'd talk to artists, young artists. It would be lunchtime. It's 25, 30 years ago. So there would be such things at lunchtime. I'd come back and paint, go back again in the afternoon, come back again early evening, you know, half past four, five o'clock or whatever. And there's still tons of the day left still to paint. But I was painting fast and interrupted and did, did that frustrate you the interruptions though did that make no i loved it no- i still love oh you did I, right i okay. absolutely love it 
because I don't want to concentrate too much. And often I'm dealing with things that are a bit heady and I don't want to think about my sorry life. I don't want to be, you know, sometimes I watch football games. Sometimes I'm watching Murder, She Wrote on the television oh, love, in my love, studio. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah. <laughs> because it's distracting. It's, it's predictable, yeah. like football is yeah. predictable. Murder programs are predictable. But they kind of interrupt me all the time. So, but then as I got older, I, I made works, you know, in series of 100 or whatever. And I became more and more interested in my mother's way of painting. She was a textile designer, so she was incredibly neat and very interested in particular ways of painting with gouache, uh, very tiny, you know, tiny designs because you only need to, to paint it very small and then it would get made into, you know, hundreds of yards of cloth and become dressing gowns or dresses or whatever. And I became more and more interested in pattern, but it means you have to slow down and paint in a, in a quite, quite different way. And I suppose what I do now is I mix the two things together in the same painting. So I've got very kind of tight, neat patterns and very, uh, sometimes it's wet on wet thing going on. But I think now when I'm painting figurative paintings, I'm interested in how those people interact with each other. They're not really interacting with each other for us. They're kind of doing their thing for each other um, and yeah. we are they'd be doing it whether you were looking at them or not right um, do you do you give them a script then do you these these do you cast them as characters and do you give them dialogue that they can act out that we don't as the audience know but you know it's not quite as clear as that most of the time most of them are going I don't know I don't know what I'm doing I don't know where I am I don't know who I am. I don't know whether I'm here or not here or whether you're here or not here. Lots of that is going on. That's about the right. extent of the dialogue. You know, sometimes people are, seem to be in different uh, centuries, but they're, in the same, they're on the same boat or they're in the same uh, strange room with the sea outside. Um, mm. But, yeah, so... Yeah, there's a lot of sea in a lot of the paintings, you know, uh, storms are coming or storms are, have gone, you know, yeah. sort of. And actually, uh, I, you mentioned, um, yeah, foreboding, yeah. You mentioned um, St. Ives earlier, and that's actually somewhere that I went in about 2018 when they reopened it because they had an extension and um, a show yeah. with the sculptor Rebecca Warren. And I went to that opening and they also had a presentation of your painting, um, I think it was between the two, my heart is balanced, of two yeah, women right. um, on a boat. And that yeah. painting really struck me because I'd actually seen an image of it printed before. But when I actually saw it in real life, it was just a completely different work. And I know you have to mm -hmm. see work in you know, real life, but I think these days we get so... Um, I think that's getting blurred more and more, especially with lockdown and things like that. But, but yeah. I remember just being so struck by it. And also the sense yeah. of, the, of movement, um, not just in the waves in the background, but, but even in one of the figure's hands, she's kind of playing a game of some kind with two kind of blue like balls or something in her hand. Yeah. And they're, they're, they've got this very beautiful kind of um, relationship between the two women. Can you talk a bit yeah. about that painting? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, uh, I do a lot of, um, I mean, I started doing it with Picasso paintings some time ago. I just um, am interested in appropriating. Uh, so I, uh, I'm very much in love with a painting that is universally acknowledged as vulgar, and his name is Tissot. And he was always thought of as a French painter, and he was painting in Britain, and everyone always thought he was incredibly vulgar, because he was painting, which is a great word, which nobody uses anymore, um, because he was painting um, uh, serving uh, servants sort of on their day off, or clerks on their days off. He wasn't painting aristocrats, you know. Um, and I liked the way that he he plays with the relationships between, uh, quite often between women, but sometimes between men and women, um, and, the, and the incredible clothes that he dresses these uh, people in. And so uh, there's a fantastic painting called Portsmouth Harbour, which is tiny um, and owned by um, Tate. And I'd seen this painting a few times when I was a child or a young a young. Yeah, well, child, 10, 11, something like that, um, in Tate. And it, I just always, I didn't, I wasn't one of those children that liked the pre-Raphaelites. I just, I preferred Tissot. And um, so I I took this, this painting, which was two women in a boat, but in between the two of them is this big butch man in a kilt. Um, and he seems to be talking to one woman and touching the other woman, and they're being rowed out in a small boat to a much bigger boat that he then is going to get into and sail off to some war or other. And then, of course, I imagined that they then would have to, they'd have to be rowed back again. But there's this relationship between these women where there's some, there's some kind of understanding or there isn't, that he's kind of allowed to do this. You know, he and and the the etching for it, the engraving for it, is called Tiso called it between the two. My heart is balanced. So it's a usual story of some guy can't quite make up his mind between one woman and another. So he's kind of stringing them both along. So what I did was love right. sense, I suppose we'll love right. Yeah. <laughs> so I replaced him. I, I put them in the boat, made it a much bigger painting. Replaced him with a pile of navigation papers uh, and maps. That's what those kind of stripy things are in between those two women. Right. Put them in the, in the open sea in this boat, and they are ripping up the maps. They're ripping up the navigation charts and trying to undo the colonization of the world. So they're trying to destroy the maps that made it possible to go to these places and loot them. Mm. So it's a kind of two women on an impossible task that are doing this thing in a completely different way than each other. They're, it's about strategy. It's about lots of those paintings, those with two black women in them, are about this is my strategy because I have, I have a particular way of doing things, which is to do with doing things slowly, negotiating over a long period of time. But lots of my colleagues over the years, Maud Salter, for instance, was like, now, we want it now. And she would approach everything in a completely different way than me. So we spent a lot of years arguing about strategy. And some of these paintings are to do with that. What it, what it means is for all of us to use all our strategies and one of them will pay off. So it, it's kind of, but the energy in it is, yeah, it's the wind, it's the wet paint, 
it's the pattern, it's these two arguing, ripping up these pieces of paper, and and a kind of connection. But I still wanted to make that connection to um, British art, I suppose, and, and those institutions that I kind of love. Yeah. How do you feel about your, your art going into institutions and going out in the world? Do you feel very protective about where it goes or are you quite cut off when you've done a painting and you've, you've made the work, you're quite happy for it to be placed? Well, it's funny because, because for many, many, many years I'd make a painting and it wouldn't go anywhere. So I, I just stored it. And so I had tons and tons of paintings and cutouts and drawings and paintings on paper and you know there was just tons of it um so I never needed to deal with that and then when it started you know Hollybush Gardens really sort of got people very very interested in the work and um then there would be the work that I'd made maybe 30 years before that people were very very interested in I was really I am was really keen for it to go to into institutions because um, well, because more people can see it, um, you know, it's, mm. it can go on show, um, it becomes part of a bigger art history. So mm. I, I'm pretty keen on that. Um, and, but I suppose what's happened to me recently, really recently is that I would paint something in my studio and I'm pretty involved in it. You know, I'm really kind of deeply involved in it. And mm -hmm. I'm not thinking while I'm painting it about what's going to happen to it. Even when it's for a show, I'm kind of in it because I'm in the, in the work somehow. Um, so then it is a bit shocking when then somebody buys it. <laughs> oh, my it's God. It's bereft. It's gone. <laughs> it's just yeah. a little bit, yes. You know, but I always make sure that there are fantastic photos of it and, and, and that I know when the things are, are out and on the wall and I can see them. But it's been different as the years have gone by. Um, you know, and sometimes seeing things again in a completely different place is really exciting. Oh, mm. right, right. Yes, yeah, so you see it in like a new way. So talking about art history, you yeah. won the Turner Prize in 2017. And yeah. for you, you've described that as a, a bittersweet win, um, even though it was an amazing thing what why what was that at the time and how do you feel about that is do you still feel the same now about that i feel a bit better about it now i think i think i kind of learned in the last three years to to own it you know and to celebrate it but i think at the time i, I knew that there were so many other black women that were up for it and i never ever thought i was going to win it you know it's like i I just thought, oh, well, I'm like those other women that are there in the shortlist to make the shortlist look better, mm. a bit more diverse. And, yeah. even, you know, so, you know, it just doesn't, it didn't make sense to me that those other women didn't win it. And then I won it. It was sort of like, well, they were younger than me. So what a difference it might have made had they won it at the age that they, that they were. You know, so it was that, really. I mean, I didn't so much mind winning it 60-something, but it was a bit... I think of the time I could have had if I'd won it at 30-something. Yeah, sure. You know, it's quite a difference, you know. But um, 
I kind of, what happened to me is that I sort of realized that I, there were 63 years behind me, but there weren't 63 years ahead of me, you know, by anyone's calculation. So, so there was that too. But I think the main thing was, God, you know, some of those people that could have won it that didn't, I'm not sure how fair that is. Yeah. I can I ask you a personal question about that? What did you spend the money on, the winnings on? Did it go back into art? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, it, it did go back into art, yes. Um, most of the time, that's what I do. Um, and I have a lot of um, uh, artists that I know that uh, a couple of people help them do some other projects, um, oh. you know, kickstart some things. Um, because I'm really... I don't know, I, I've learned, I suppose, in the last few years especially, but something I knew all along, was that there are some very incredible artists that actually what they need are actually really quite small sums of money, makes a massive, massive difference. Yes, you know, yes. like it can buy a new computer or it can get you to go somewhere or um, it's just the sort of difference be between being able to buy something or not buy something. Yeah. And loads of the artists I know, especially uh, the ones that I work with in the north of England, are incredibly supportive to me. You know, of course, they take the piss now that I'm, you know, famous and all that. But, <laughs> um, but I could never have done the things I've done without them, and I still can't do it without them. And so we've kind of built a thing together. So that kind of, some of those kinds of exchanges were incredibly important. Um, yeah, I don't know. I spent it on, I didn't really spend it on some actual thing, you know. And I bought some fancy shoes, you know, Good. which is one of the things I <laughs> said I was going to buy. Yeah. I bought some great shirts, you know, from Yako Marikard, which is this um, Japanese designer your, that I really like. Oh, yeah. Wow. What's your fancy shoes? Where were they from? Oh, well, I'm afraid, kind of boringly, but they were from Paul Smith. Oh, God, lovely. Like brogues. Yeah. Like nice. Yeah. yeah um, beautiful uh, turquoise, um, not brogues, actually, a bit more like desert boots sort of thing. Mm. Really gorgeous. So I've got a few pairs of Paul Smith shoes. Yes, Lebena. <laughs> lovely. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> you know, you were mentioning like collab, uh, sort of having that kinship with other artists. And I know that you've been a teacher at um, Lancashire at the university. Um, but also when you were in your 30s in, in 85, you made that piece, the carrot piece, which is almost referencing, you know, those, those feelings that you had when you did win the Turner Prize. Can you speak a bit about that particular work and like, this idea mm. of institutions and and how people of colour or black artists, you know, get brought into programmes or yeah. exhibitions or, you know, museums. Yeah. Well, I think I knew then, you know, that's the trouble with me. I'm a bit, you know, a bit over, over wise. So mm. I made the show um, The Thin Black Line at the ICA. And, um, but they only gave us um, the corridor uh, the corridor was much narrower then than it is now. So you, you went yeah. into sort of foyer and then there was this long, thin corridor um, until you got to the uh, cafe on the left and then the bar on the right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it wasn't sort of open, that big gallery. You had to actually go into that big gallery. It wasn't there was a wall. So they gave us this corridor and 
I wanted to pack it, to really pack it. So I put 11 artists, 11 of us, in this corridor, which really I should have put three artists in. But I wanted, on purpose, I wanted to say, look, I've put 11 in this crazy number, not three or six or nine, but 11, because if there are 11, then there must be, I think at the time, I would say 11 You know what I mean? There are hundreds of us. And I made that piece, the character piece, especially for that, so there's this um, a man on a unicycle, and he has, and he's kind of, he's a kind of uh, relative of the cut-out men with the four-foot penises that I made a few, a couple of years earlier than that. So he's got all his clothes on, but he's got these kind of pink trousers, and he's kind of big and, you know, there, enormous, and on a unicycle with a big fishing rod and a carrot, and he seems to be tempting this black woman who has in her hand this kind of um, vessel and a kind of sort of splash of paint, really. It's a kind of talisman. And she's looking back at him, but she knows that she has what's important to her. And for me, what was important to me was those women I was in that show with. But I knew that I needed also to, to... get into those galleries and take all those people with me because we needed them. We wanted to be artists. We needed to have relationships with galleries and museums. And I was, I suppose, prepared to sacrifice the, I don't know, my morals, I suppose, and and take the, the king's shilling, if you like, to get us all in there somehow. And it's sort of about that. It's about knowing that this is, you're on a hiding to nothing, but knowing that you have to do it anyway. But that's a huge generosity on your part, isn't it? No, because you don't want to be the only person. It isn't generous at all. I never want to be the only one. I I hate United we stand, divided we fall mentality. And also we've all got something really good to say. You know, we don't necessarily Mm. have to agree. You know, it's all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also that, that idea of the corridor, you know, which had 11 artists in and then the huge gallery directly next door, you know, it's like, yeah. I found that very interesting when I read that, you know, as a symbolic thing of that time. And yeah. also even now, you know, we have so much work to do, you know, in the art world. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you for mentioning that artwork because I was touched by that one. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So we ask every artist, Labena, that comes on. Mm. Have you listened to Talk Art before, by the way? I listened to Edward um, from Vogue. Edward Anifil, very good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> I don't know. I love Edward. But, you know, he's just he a actually, fantastic He was job. deeply touched when you won the Turner Prize as well. I think for yeah. him it was a yeah. very significant moment in kind of black British history and... Um, yeah, and also for women in art as well, I think. You know, he he, he spoke very eloquently about that. Um, yeah, that was really very kind. I think I think it helped lots of us make some other things happen. I think that was, you know, that was the good thing about that Turner Prize. Mm. Well, I've forgotten, though, what you ask everybody. I've forgotten what you ask. Oh, okay. No, just going talking about that, because on, on Desert Island Discs, you, you mm. said that at one point in your career, you were told that black people don't make art. Mm. Yeah. Can, can you can you can you remember the actual? Can you still have a vivid memory of that? As and 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 there's and the feeling that kind of that the anger that came from that that then propelled you to keep going. 
Or did it knock you back at the time? What did it make you feel? No, I knew it was ridiculous because my mum had artworks on my mum's English, white English. Um, and she she had artwork on her wall by African artists that she bought in, um, you know, for a few, not very much money at all, but in um, like the exhibitions at the Commonwealth Institute or the Africa Centre or the friends of hers who were like, um, she was very good friends with a filmmaker called Lal Ngakani. And, um, you know, he'd introduced her to artists. You know, I've been, my family's been hanging out with artists one way or another, since I was a small child. And so I knew that that people may not. I just thought, mm, this person's ridiculous. Yeah, good. But I realised that it was something that needed proving and that it wasn't all about artists from somewhere else. I think that's what sort of the pity of it is that, that you know, people... It's hard to say, but, you know, people are into kind of black culture, but they're not necessarily into black people, you know. Yeah. Yes. So they like the thing, but not but they don't hang about with us, hang out with us. That's the same, you know, with curators today, you know. They, they like the work of people, but they, they just don't say come out for a cup of tea, you know, or mm. meet for a coffee somewhere, you know, and actually realise it's just ordinary. Mm. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, really, I, I sort of lost my, lost my train of thought yeah. there, thinking about do, curators. Do you, feel like instant, do you feel like institutions still have a long way to go right now? Yeah, cause, yeah because they need, because I think they, it's great the way they actually do genuinely sit around and really try to work out how on earth they're going to address this. But if they thought about, if the, the curators within them thought about artists of colour like they thought, think about every other artist that they deal with. You know, they, they're looking at artists' work all the time, even if they're not going to put them in a big show or a big fancy thing at, you know, a national gallery. They're, mm. they're looking at artists, artists do all the time. And yet, you know, there isn't this sort of hanging out that goes on. They, they don't hang out with us. Mm. You know, and All that's right. the way you learn more about what artists do, what they think, what's interesting about them. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's the individuals within those institutions, there's the institutions of themselves, and there's the history of the institution. And unfortunately, all of us have to kind of try and do all three of those things at once. So it's like, yeah, juggling, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, that's also why I think talking about art is so important, though, and just having conversations. Yeah. It's kind of what I was trying to say yeah. in the introduction. And weirdly, yeah. like, Russell and I never knew that Talk Art, this podcast, was going to become something that meant so much um, to both of us in such a deep way and something that was going to be so educational as well. And I yeah, think God. this idea of, like, political change, social change, they were never things I even knew I cared about. But subconsciously, we, we created this show that actually it might seem like an entertainment show, but actually it's about those very issues, you know, Absolutely. and, and that, that does mean something, you know, and I, 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 yeah, I think there is a lot of work to be done and I think people have to talk and listen to each other because otherwise, yeah, think, right. How do you understand art if you don't talk to the artist? I mean, mm. yeah. And, and yeah, and then listen to yourself. Cause also I think yes. people, you know, when they're walking around looking at stuff, they, they must be curious or they wouldn't have gone there. You know, they must, and they're hungry for 
for information. But I think lots of the time, if people actually were, lis- was, were listening to what was going on in their head when they're looking at something, it sometimes is more informative than the label, you know. Sometimes the label's a bit, oh, you know, oh, I see, this is what it meant. But actually, quite a lot of artists just want you to relax and kind of look at the work and think, what, what do you think? What do I, what do I think? Even if you're looking at something and, you, and you're thinking about, I don't know, who you love or where you might go later, that tells you something mm. about what you're looking at. You Trust know. your own inner voices yeah. when it comes to, to looking at art, yeah. So we're we talking do, about that then. Music. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, we do. You're right. You do. You drift yeah. off, and you allow yeah. them thoughts to be part of the the melody, don't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're talking about looking at art then. So we ask every guest if you could do an art heist, if you could steal, you can have it. You don't have to steal it. Take it nicely. Any work of art <laughs> in the world. What would that be, and why? Yes, I forgot about this question thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a hard, it's really hard because I, it would be hard to choose between a Betty Saar. Oh. Oh, uh, Bridget Riley or a Tissot. Oh. And Bridget oh, Riley, you were talking about the patterning <laughs> earlier on. I was going to say the op art element of Bridget Riley definitely features in your fabrics in your work yeah but also you made that series like zanzibar series of kind of geometric painting yeah yeah and howard hodgkin i see in there as well a lot do you have you ever yeah, strangely i i never been as keen on his work i i yeah. think i think i always felt it was trying to say something to me but but i didn't know what that was uh-huh. whereas i think bridget riley i'm having a right old battle with those do you know um, yeah. I love them, and and I'm competing with them, and I'm adoring them. You know, I think I probably would take, I'd take it out of tape. I think it's called Early Morning. I know right. it, um, yeah. And it does something really strange. In the middle of the painting, it kind of does a sort of um, sunrise thing. It kind of goes, it kind of goes orange and yellow or something where it where it shouldn't you don't realize that that's what it's going to do i think i'd take that it's big and it's and it moves all the time and you can't look at it for long and then you try and it's Mm. pushing you back and sucking you in i think i think looking at her work made me realize that paint just paint can do that it pulls you in and and you out repels pulls you in away. and shuts yeah. you out yeah yeah it's quite that's, from, that's from the late the late 60s i think 67 68 or 67 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and Something i think it's called like late 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 morning is it okay yeah 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 just right okay it's such a great work yeah beautiful well, that's yeah. yours Thank you very much. That's fantastic. The other other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Which actually follows on well from Bridget. Yeah. Mm, Well, (laughs) God, that's a terrible, terrible question. It is. (laughs) It's so so simple, but actually it's quite revealing sometimes. Yeah, a lot of people find it really challenging. Then some other people come straight out with a colour. Yeah, yeah people I'm, often reveal things about themselves through, through yeah. which is interesting. I'm making a painting at the moment which is 80 foot long, but 50, <gasps> what? 
50 uh, millimeters high, which is for a show in Brussels. And it's blue. Uh, the whole painting is blue. And I'm painting on tureens, on maps, on bits of piano. And then uh, my friend um, Magda Stavaskabevan is making this composition out of the words blue in French and in Flemish uh, and in English. So we've, we're making this thing together. And and we have in our minds um, Joni Mitchell's Blue for yeah, the, the 64 album, yeah. paintings, you know, 64 bars of that song. I think it's mm. blue, you know. I don't often use it that much in paintings. Mm -hmm. I wear it quite a lot. And my kitchen is kind of baby blue. Mm. And... Yeah, I think it's blue. Wow. Love and is this all one work, this piece? Would it be seen as one yeah. full piece? Yeah, one right? work, and it just goes all the way around the room. Oh, my God. I wow. And how far into it are you? Are you nearly halfway well, through? Well, as far as I should be. <laughs> right, right. What's the, dead, what's the deadline for that? Well, the deadline is probably... I'm trying not I'm trying not to engage with the deadline, but I think the deadline really is the end of July. So it'll be all right. As long as I don't get distracted by some other piece of work, I have a slight tendency to make several things at once. Uh, but oh, I, good, I just made a yeah, I made a lot of stuff and I just sent it away because okay. my mum died just at the end of February, and so I've been in lockdown right. making paintings, trying to sort of you know, you know, just become a bit more sane than I was feeling. And uh, so I made that set of paintings when really I should have been doing this blue piece um but that was okay so uh, now i'm actually concentrating on this so i think i should be fine <laughs> but i think it's blue yeah i'm so sorry to hear that Lorraine. that's really sad oh, no 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 she was very very elderly you know and it was very peaceful and easy you know she was 91 so it was it's fine she was yeah. and she's seen and she's seen her daughter be a huge success and see yeah, your she, art and did she love she your loved art that. Well, she she's very she was very sort of um, circumspect, do you know what I mean? So even really late, you know, like maybe a week or so before she died, I was still taking in uh, pictures on my phone. I said, "I'm just doing this at the minute," you know, and uh -huh. she'd look. She was still looking at me, sort of as if, "Well, yeah, it's not bad." <laughs> <You know? laughs> so she never tell. gave you full credit, right? <laughs> not really. <laughs> Sometimes she she really liked her thing, but most of the time, like, mm, well, yes, you know, her nose is a bit peculiar, or, oh, yes, you really think that orange goes. <laughs> the good thing about that, though, is it sounds like she knew what she liked, so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She obviously definitely <laughs> yeah. listened to her inner voice, which is a good yeah. thing. You know, there's something that really struck me, which is one of the reasons we wanted to ask uh, to speak with you for this show, was um, a few years ago, Russell and I were in New York, and we were walking on the High Line, and we saw the mm. Doors um, installation oh, yeah. of your Five Conversations, women, five women. 2019. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that work, for me, just blew me away, and we actually took loads of pictures of us stood by these doors, yeah. but the oh, more I bad. looked at it, I, I, I keep looking at them on the internet, and it mm. sticks in my mind, that that body of work. And there's something about this idea of the door being a kind of gateway to another place and a hopeful place, or even like you're talking about your mother passing away now, but like, you know, to other worlds or the people you've loved. And there was something so striking from that that it's just stuck in my head ever since, for the, for the years since. And I just wanted to say thanks for that, because it's very rare that oh. I will have that kind of a sort of 
spiritual reaction. connection to yeah. something and and it really has stayed with me and i i think people really have to see that that work yeah. this idea of the everyday door that we live with with so there five wooden doors from georgian townhouses up that you've reclaimed yeah, that's again right. found objects you've reclaimed yeah that's right and um the um my assistants matt, matt uh virtual and theo lashley burnley constructed three uh, you know other doors to kind of hold those doors up. So altogether there are 10 doors, mm. um, all sort of holding them up. And I think they're stuck on a ship now because they're coming back here to Britain. Oh, because it was a loan, right? Okay. It was just a year. Uh, uh, they, they, they asked me to make something for the High Line and they were there from something like March 2019 yeah. to April 2020, they were supposed to be there, something like that. Mm. March mm. 2020. Anyway, so we so must then have they seen got it then, I think, in March. Yeah, yeah. I just started yeah. the podcast, and I remember it being like, okay, like we have to talk to her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so glad, yeah. Yeah. So they're coming back home now. So, but they just got stuck somewhere. Would they get shown in the UK if people want to see them? Hopefully, they didn't get to yeah. Yeah, that'd be yeah, cool. I think, yeah, I think uh, we we'll try and do that for sure. We're going to start a campaign right now. <laughs> British institutions help get yes, the works on display. Exactly, get the five connection um, conversations, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's been amazing, Labaina. Thank you so thank much you. for thank coming you, on Talk. Are you on, um, are you on Instagram? I am, yes. Yes, I follow, uh, follow you on Instagram, yeah. Yes, and what's your Instagram handle? Lubaina Picks, I think. Lubaina Picks. Yeah, it is. Picks. It's P-I-C-S. Yeah. Do, do you enjoy Instagram? Is that like something I you're really... I love it. I love it. Absolutely love it. There's nothing I like better than scrolling. I don't mind if it's people's cakes or their weddings or artwork or political stuff. You know, I just love... I love it. I think it's really great. I like how people use it, you know. Oh. Yeah. Yes, very, very well, We good. love you, Labaina. Thank you so, <laughs> Thank so you much so for coming much. on Talkart. Yes, Thanks for, for all images. Of course. No, please thank you for coming on. Um, for all images we talked about today, please go to our at Talkart page. And we have Twitter, don't we, Rob? What's our Twitter handle? Yeah, it's at Talkart Podcast, but it's going to be becoming at Talkart because Twitter are being nice to us. Ooh, and they are helping us get a more direct whatever you call it, handle. Yes, um, yes. Well, thank well, you, you so much. Handle. This has been the best hour yes. of it ever. Um, and we will be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Lebena. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Thank you both. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com